This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from University of California, Death Valley. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at Socianex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're very happy to be talking to David Peterson of Northwestern University. David is a sociologist of knowledge and science and is best known for his 2015 article in the American Sociological Review, All This is Solid, Bench Building at the Frontiers of Two Experimental Sciences. His newer work talks about trust and the moral economy of science. You aren't going to want to miss this. That's right, Gabriel. You're not no, going to want to miss this. I didn't want to miss uh, Ashley either. I think they've all been great. I was just saying, in principle, every once in a while, we should have an expendable episode. We, we, we should make an effort to reach out to expendable guests. <laughs> I just feel like it would be it would be quite disheartening for any guest to hear uh, yeah. right before they're interviewed. Welcome to this completely expendable podcast. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, David. Hi, nice to be here. I want to uh, announce that we got our 100th Twitter follower, which I know is not a big deal at all, <laughs> but I, I took enormous pride in that this morning. You should be proud, Joe. <laughs> yeah, we're no longer skittering along the bottom of obscurity. <laughs> we're one notch among total, uh, you know, obscurity. I, I was thinking about it, and it's like, you know, uh, I, I'm a middle-aged suburban dad. <laughs> There's not much exciting going on in my life, so this passes for something big these days. It's amazing. <laughs> Anyhow, what's going on, guys? Anybody want to start? Uh, oh, I, I can start. I can start. So, yeah, so there's been this tweet that's been going around for the past... Um, for the past Wait a minute, how do you know about it? Because, because <laughs> Did you start hitting the pipe? <laughs> I, no, I'm still not on Twitter. Um, oh, good for you. I'm still not on Twitter, but actually I was being interviewed for a radio show and the host asked me about this tweet and I said, what? What is a tweet? Oh. And, um, <laughs> and she, she brought my attention to this. It's, it's been in the Boston Globe, BBC covered it. The Daily Post, New York Daily Post covered it. So, um, and it's basically about this nursing textbook published in 2015 by Pearson um, that basically has two pages um, about how racial groups respond to pain. And oh. it is fascinating. Would you like to hear a little bit about how different groups respond to pain? Absolutely. Absolutely. Arabs slash Muslims may not request pain medicine, but instead thank Allah for pain if it oh. is the result of a healing medical procedure. Um, Asians, uh, uh, Filipino clients may not take oh. pain medication because they view pain as being the will of God. Oh, it's already hurting hearing this um, list. Go on, go on. Uh, but this blacks, hurts. people believe suffering and pain are inevitable. Jews oh. may be vocal and demanding of assistance. <laughs> <laughs> They believe that pain must be shared and validated by others. <laughs> right? It goes on and on and on and on. Right? Oh, Native Americans, they usually tolerate a high level of pain without requesting pain medication. So, and they apparently may pick a sacred number when asked to rate pain on a numerical pain scale. Oh, no. Um, yeah. And so, so yeah. So, 2015... Pearson nursing textbook. Discuss. 
Okay, so I have two thoughts of this. One is I feel like this is an instance of careful what you wish for because there's probably you know, I could easily imagine there was some nursing conference somewhere where you know there was like a plenary session and people are talking about how we need more cultural competence and more oh, awareness yeah. of cultural difference and everything like that, which sounds wonderful and very <laughs> sensitive and everything. But then when you actually see what comes out of it, it's a bad stand-up routine. Oh, no, for sure. That's been one of that's been one of my critiques for a very long time in terms of both uh, nursing and medicine is, you know, some, some of the way people do and approach this cultural competency thing looks a lot to me like just stereotyping. So... <laughs> What's this based on? First of all, who, who wrote this book? And what is this based on? That's a really good question, actually. I think that that's actually one of the questions that Pearson um, has had to respond to. And as a result, they just said, you know what? We're just going to remove it from the ebook, and we will no we will not reprint this in the newer version of the book. But I mean, but it's true. I mean, you'd think the authors would know better. Um, there's supposedly a review process. There are editors somewhere. Yeah, that sounds like a reviewer who sort of half-assed uh, half-assed the review. Isn't there a long tradition though of believing that uh, blacks feel less pain or something like that? Oh no, for sure. I mean, I kind of feel like every ten to twelve years, you know, there's something in JAMA or um, or the Lancet that basically says, yeah, we actually are not really good um, at treating pain in black folk uh, because we actually believe that they have thicker skin and so they don't feel pain the way the rest of us do. Um, and I actually, I remember listening to, um, listening to an interview with um, Dorothy Roberts and a, and, and a, and a couple of, um, of clinicians who were responding to the latest pain medication, uh, or, or I should say pain treatment study that looked at these racial disparities. And one of them said, you know, I was talking to someone and they said, well, the upside of this is that, you know, at least black people didn't get as many opioids as everybody else. And so hopefully they won't be as affected by the opioid crisis. Well, see, that that was the other thing I was thinking in that um, I, I've kind of been saving this for, you know, eight years down the road when we can't get a guest. Uh, those of you who are, you know, not the three of us don't know that, like, uh, Joe constantly wants a book, like, you know, six weeks in advance. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> anyway, I've been saving this for when we uh, don't have a guest, but I, I want to eventually talk about Dreamland, mm. which is this uh, book on the opiate crisis, and it's fantastic. On my blog, I compared it to, like, sociologists should use it the same way political scientists use uh, History of the Peloponnesian War. Um, anyway, but one of the main themes in the book is that medicine uh, had the pain revolution in the 1990s, where pharmaceutical companies and doctors who were concerned about pain, mostly coming out of um, oncology and hospice care, started aggressively pushing greater use of pain medication. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the underlying causes of the opiate crisis. And, you know, this whole idea of if you listen to all these stereotypes, they basically are the upshot to them is people of this ethnic group don't request enough drugs. 
And you should double check and make sure, are you sure you don't want some morphine? Right. Um, it, it, there's, it, you know, with the possible exception of the Jewish stereotype, uh, <laughs> no. basically all of them are saying these people won't ask for dr- pain medication even if they need it. Well, except, you know, for so bla- no, saying, except for black people. It says blacks often report higher pain intensity than other cultures. Okay. Right. And so don't give them drugs. Huh. Oh, oh, wait a minute. They expect to be hurt. And so they don't need the drugs because they've come to accept that pain is part of existence. No, is that, that, is it- no, what they're saying is that they report higher pain intensity, right? So they're like, I have pain, right? So they're like, yeah, you know, they're kind of, those people seem to exaggerate pain. That's the way I read that. I would have believed it for, well, if, to the degree that I'm representative of a Jewish demographic, I'd be like, Pump me full of drugs. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about Amy Cuddy. Sure. Mm. All right. So uh, uh, have you heard about this? Has everybody heard about this? Oh, yeah. Well, the I, listeners I want, might not, yeah. so go ahead. Okay, well, I, first of all, I want to give a shout out. I heard about it from my colleague, Amy Sin. She's beyond brilliant. She does incredible work. She's a UCLA-trained demographer, by the way, Gabriel. Oh, cool. And I'm... I, I'm begging her to come on the podcast. So, but anyhow, Amy Cuddy is a social psychologist and uh, she's done her work on body language and power poses. And the basic idea is the way we carry ourselves influences other people's perceptions about us. And she's become a, like a total rock star. She was on Oprah. She got a big TED talk. She's on the paid speaking circuit and she had a best selling uh, book from Little Brown and Company. So, the commercial publisher. It's a great, great Well, they published great Gladwell's book, which shows you the market yeah. segment. Yeah, it's not, not like one of those academic niche uh, yeah. publishers. So then her work gets caught up in the whole replication crisis that's hitting psychology. And there's a lot of discussion about, you know, replication problems. And uh, uh, the way the Times puts it, Cuddy was caught up in a new culture of, quote, openly combative public criticism. And basically what happened is people have been posting on blogs arguing that her uh, she might be or her 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 results aren't, aren't I guess, uh, don't uh, – so confident that she might have been p-hacking and they mention andrew gelman and this post on data colada which i I don't know the site Uh but basically there's arguments that she's p-hacking she's standing up as an example of p-hacking and i looked it up and her name gets mentioned a lot in the blogs and she was the target of a lot of i don't know disparaging comments by commenters on andrew gelman's blog um, and then Cuddy goes off on Facebook and her advisor, Susan Fisk, uh, from Princeton, and they call, uh, you know, they call these comments, these public comments, like a uh, product of self-appointed data police and mob rule and calling them bullies. And there's sort of just this big public sort of battle Susan, going on. And Susan Fisk uh, also wrote a piece where she called uh, members of this movement methodological terrorists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the language is pretty heated here. It's extremely heated. And, and for me, I was interested in it because, you know, things are changing in the academy. And definitely, like, the locus of conversation is moving to new media. Like, yeah. it used to be that everything went through, you know, uh, journals. And now people are taking to blogs. And 
What, what, like, what do you think the ethics of this are? Should, should, is it okay to publicly criticize someone on a blog? Cuddy, Cuddy said that the, the proper venue for this would have been through the journals themselves. And, uh, how hard, or what are the ethics in terms of how hard you go after someone? Where does the line cross? If things only went through journals, then as we speak, Mike LaCour would be a professor, an assistant professor at Princeton. Yeah. And, yeah, and they would sure. and they would be going through the process to fire him two years later, mm. but because yeah. people were able to post their notes on um, poli sci job rumors, and then uh, after that kind of circulated like that, put it in a public working paper, they were able to actually uh, not convene his doctoral defense, and then strip the job offer from political science at Princeton. Uh, huh. which I think was the appropriate, which was obviously the appropriate outcome because the data yeah, was bullshit. Yeah, yeah but as far as the journals go, it's important to know, too, that uh, like uh, in the case of Daryl Bam, uh, who I, I think started a lot of this with his uh, precognition study, um, they actually tried to go through the journals, uh, uh, some critics of the paper, and the paper, uh, they, the journal told them that they didn't publish replication papers. And so I think, um, huh. you, you know, this is changing now, but I think... Uh, the journal system hasn't been a good mechanism for self-correction in the field. So was the ESP paper satire, or was the ESP no. paper like he actually believed in heebie-jeebie stuff? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, there's a paper in – or an article in, uh, I think, Slate uh, not too long ago um, that was kind of a deep dive into the Daryl Bam paper. And it, uh, he had had an interest in precognition stuff for many years. And so he, uh, he, he believed in this. I mean, he, he still believes in it. Oh, he's wow. still, yeah, he's still publishing meta-analyses trying to show that, his, that these phenomena are real. Okay, I, I assumed that it was like somebody basically making a demonstration of how publication or PIVA hacking works, publication bias or PIVA hacking works. Yeah. I thought it was a Sokol kind of paper too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't look into it, but that's what I thought. No, it's fascinating, yeah. and and I think for a lot of people, because I think that paper came out in two thousand nine, maybe, and for a lot of people, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, for a lot of people, that that paper uh, for them was just such a uh, a canary in the coal mine. You know, the fact that, that paper, mm -hmm. you know, seriously could make it through peer review, I think really upset a lot of a lot of uh, social psychologists who saw themselves as sort of serious scientists. OK, so so I have a question. Right. So the way that the way that I see uh, Amy, Amy Cuddy in her career trajectory um, and and her work is I actually think that Amy did everything she was trained to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh -huh. um, I kind of I, I think that, you know, a lot of the problems that, you know, a lot of the problems that people are in social psych are now being warriors or against are not about individuals being bad actors, but about the conventions of the the conventions of the field. So if you don't like small ends, right, if P hacking is a thing, you know, that or or what have you and things of that sort, I think it's one thing to attack those practices and another thing to attack individuals. Can I can I piggyback on that? Yeah. So uh, I I we've been talking about it around the office cuz you know it's big news. And there are people who defend Cuddy, and this is what they seem to argue. They say, listen, P-hacking, I mean, it was always sort of, 
We were warned in some form not to do it in the abstract, but a lot of people feel like it was a tacit part of our training or it was accepted practice up until recently, right? Like you you were trained to believe that unless you got a significant finding, your work was useless. And if you had no findings, you had to like rehabilitate your work into something of, of value, right? Quote, unquote. And, and though they agree that like it's a good thing to get rid of p-hacking, they feel like Cuddy herself was publicly skewered in a way that uh, was unfair. What, what's your what's your feelings about that that take? I totally I I agree with that. I I agree with that. You know, I mean, I, I like I was like thinking about it and reflecting on it, and I was like, you know, in some ways, and I hope, Amy, if you're listening to this, you won't take this the wrong way. But um, uh, I I kind of thought of I like I like I was just like, oh my goodness, Amy Cuddy's become the Taylor Swift of social psych, right? <laughs> um, oh, so can you explain that? I don't, yeah, I don't get the well, for either. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You you don't you don't know Taylor Swift's whole you know body of work. I mean you know when she comes out you know people were um, you know I, I think that she wrote that song Why You Got to Be So Mean in response to a music critic who just decided to eviscerate her. I think at the time she was fifteen or sixteen. Right. And you're just like, what? I'm just singing. Right. Um, and I think there's and also, you know, what's her other shake it off. Right. You know, mm. people people going to hate, 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 haters going to hate. Right. I kind of feel like there's an element of hate here. Right. Um, I think that um, I think that Amy Cuddy achieved a certain level of fame such that you know, she didn't need to rely on the Academy anymore unless she wanted to remain in the Academy. And I think that some people, um, you know, I think that some people, I think that some people actually hate it when academics become famous. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, and, you know, I'm not saying that this was done uh, on a conscious level, but really the vitriol that I think was heaped upon her, I actually think it was over excessive. And again, if you have a problem with the field uh, or, or you have a problem with the work, focus on those things. Don't focus on the individual. Well, I, I think the reason people reacted to her work so strongly was, you know, A, like you said, it got famous and it was high profile. And B, it was the kind of thing that gets famous and that it's this vaguely ridiculous counterintuitive kind of thing but that has like um you know positive like life hack type things but it's just yeah. and then also on top of that it's just facially ridiculous you know this idea that you know you can stand there you know doing a pose and then you go out there and kick ass well, um, one of my colleagues one of my colleagues saw it completely the opposite she said to me uh, you know, it makes sense that the way we handle ourselves influences people's impressions of us. So for her, the finding made complete sense. Well, well but that that's not the it. only finding. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not that people see you standing with a, a dominant posture and think you're dominant. It's that you do that when nobody can see you. And then you go out there and you just have like more, you know, um, you know, villains are mocked and you just go out there and kick ass. Oh, it's a personal thing. David, yeah. what did you, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I, I think her initial findings too were, um, it actually changed her hormones, right? You're supposed to have more. Oh yeah. Well, oh, that right, was right. BS. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, here's the other thing, Leslie, with with your position. I get the idea that she transcends the Academy, right? And Uh that now she's on the speaker's circuit. She's writing pop books. She's on Oprah and all of that stuff. But then if that's the case and you've moved to the general public sphere, then doesn't that make the general public sphere the appropriate medium for you to be criticized? Like you can't be conveying your primary message outside of the journals and then expect your critics to go through the journals. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, John Stewart with his clown nose on, clown's nose off, right? Where like he, he wants to have the, you know... Um, the gravitas of, you know, like, oh, I'm the most favored news source for people under 35. But then whenever somebody says he's wrong about something, he's like, oh, I'm just telling jokes, you know. Well, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't, I, I'm not saying that the blogs weren't an appropriate forum um, for, you know, for this to be taking place for exactly the same, many of the same reasons that Gabe and, and, and David pointed out. Um, I, I actually think, and in particular, if what she was doing seemed to be in accordance with the conventions of social psych, uh, how likely would the journals have been to publish these critiques, right? They may have been, maybe they wouldn't have been. Um, but it's not so much, it's not so much that they appeared in the blogs. I think because they appeared in the blogs, uh, you know, sort of conventions of like, even a veneer of politeness were thrown out the window. Well, you, um, and, oh, yeah, go ahead. You, you keep going to this thing of like, well, she was doing what she was trained to do. She was doing what was conventional. And I, I see this almost as like, let's say that I was trained as an astrologer and, you know, I, I went to grad school to learn how to read star charts and compare them to your birth date and what year it is and adjust for the shifts in the constellations and everything like that. And then, you know, should you respect what I'm doing because it's how I was trained to do and it's traditional? Or should you say that, you know, uh, you know Gabriel, who's appearing on Oprah and giving TED Talks on astrology, is a bullshit artist? Look... You know, I like I said, I think that there's one standard within academia and and one standard in the general public, as as Joe was saying. And, you know, my whole thing is if this had not like taken off the way that it did in the general public, I actually think people would have seen this paper and said, okay, rookie mistakes. You know, Mm. these are the things that you know, you have to be careful for in the future. But because she's so big in the public's eye, you know, people just heap on. And I'm like, you know, give her a break. David. I think it's a really interesting discussion. Um, I think it it crosses both what Leslie's saying and also what Joe had said earlier about the sort of public nature of these conversations. I think to some degree when you have um, any of these discussions, especially regarding uh, female scientists, uh, they're is a lot of um, uh, gender issues that come up where I think the women uh, are often attacked um, on a more personal level. And I think this raises a general question about what is the proper a proper forum for these kind of discussions. As Joe said before, um, you know, it, it, this didn't happen through the journals. This happened through blogs. This happened through Twitter accounts, through Facebook accounts. And on one hand, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, science uh, – the rhetoric of science is all about openness. It's all about, you know, a, a open critique. But it does raise questions about about who um, who we want in that sphere. Really, are, are you know, should anyone be able to comment, or should there be some restrictions? And I think, well, David, oh, what's no? Go what are your views on the ethics of uh, of criticism in the public sphere versus traditional channels? 
I mean, I'm wrangling with it. I think it's it. We are facing a, a a brand new area here, where really I think for the first time we're seeing these discussions happen uh, much more quickly and impactfully offline than they are through these, or, or sorry, online than through these sort of traditional channels. We're seeing um, you mm. know things that are happening on blogs and Twitter actually reverberate and change the fields themselves. Uh, but because you know the journal system tends to be much slower, uh, stodgier, it tends to be you know more resistant to change, and so it lends itself to this kind of change. But it also lends itself to um, to a lot of you know sort of trolling behavior, a lot of extreme behavior that is is potentially quite damaging for the field. Well, I, I don't know if I buy this thing of like I, I know that this was a defense that she's made, and um, I've heard it in the case of a few other people. But this this issue that it's like specifically gendered, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I buy that because yeah. like if you look at, uh, I've seen criticism of Sudair Venkatesh that sounds kind of yeah. like this. I've uh, seen uh, obviously Mike Lacour got oh he got it bad, but yeah. uh, he also did something that was objectively worse. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Cuddy. I, I think the consensus is that she probably, she, you know, she tested a facially little you know, iffy hypothesis, and then there may have been some p-hacking involved, there may have been some publication bias involved, whatever, in terms of samples, but she didn't outright make up her data. I don't think anybody believes that. Whereas Lacour, right. you know, we, we can pretty much, you could pretty much replicate the R scripts he presumably wrote hmm. to... Um, yeah, I saw that, that on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, what Joe's referring to is I've been working my way through this R textbook, and one of the assignments is you have to um, analyze... <clears throat> the uh, basically the reliability between waves of observation and Lacour's data, and for the control group um, in his studies, there's like either a 0.995 or a 0.9 correlation between <laughs> what the control the control group uh, has their feeling thermometer for in wave one and wave two, which is just ridiculous because a feeling thermometer is the kind of thing you'd expect to have low reliability. Oh yeah, that was great. Yeah. We, we got to post that on, on the show page. But like, so what? What uh, does it matter that she was charging money uh, and doing public speeches and things like that? That she was engaged does that does that alter the ethics? Well, like, yeah, I, that's the question. It definitely made her a bigger target, but it may or may not alter the ethics. I think there's a separate issue here, though, which is that I think it's possible to look at uh, Amy Cuddy uh, as as maybe the victim of. of of some attacks, and maybe she deserved uh, some of those attacks because of you know engaging in some bad behavior. I think another side of this, though, is that Amy Cuddy got that job, and Michael Lacour almost got the job, and that means that other people didn't get those jobs. That a lot of people mm-hmm. are are you know who are trying to uh, do what they consider to be you know really excellent, diligent work are suffering under this same uh, system where these people are are succeeding. And I think this really um, explains at least some of the motivation for the critique and a lot of the animosity that it, it, it's not just sort of sour grapes or um, or you know hate uh, hatred of success. but there is a general sense that these mm-hmm. people are essentially cheating. yeah mm-hmm. yeah, but I mean, but you've heard of the saying, right? You know, hate the game, don't hate the player. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's something. I, I mean, I actually think, I, mean, I was just having this conversation with one of my colleagues just right before we started recording. And, you know, I actually think that um, the tenure process actually does create these, like, 
these like obscene incentives, right? Mm. To, you know, to engage in certain types of work, right? In order to get the job, in order to get tenure, right? And, 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 and yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe again, rather than focusing on Amy Cuddy and saying, you know, she was rotten, she didn't deserve the job, we should be looking at the people who decided to hire Amy Cuddy and saying, why were you so into that work? Maybe. You know what I, I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about how uh, this, in a way, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff controversy. That was a, a big econ book from a few years ago that mm -hmm. they found some calculationers. And I remember really admiring them because they made their data public. And I presume some graduate student like just downloaded the data and found a flaw. Whatever. Is that the Excel one? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they were very – they gave me their data too. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think – it would have been much harder to find the flaw had they not distributed the data. And I thought to myself in that case, there's such a stigma with being wrong, even though we're all wrong all the time. Like, it, it should be okay to make a mistake. I'd love to see some type of norm of being wrong, being okay, like we can be corrected and, and not get so defensive about it. Well, is there a way for, is there a way for us to actually get credit for being wrong, but in our being wrong, we've actually helped to move the field forward in some way. Well, that's how I think about the Reinhardt and Rogoff case. Like they compiled a ton of data, although some of it was, you know, not too tough to compile, but still they put it together. They, they created a database and that in and of itself, like data compilation is a job. Cleaning data is a job. Yeah, but You're serving the discipline. Joe, if people were ever not to be defensive about their mistakes, then comment replies wouldn't be nearly as entertaining to read as they are. <laughs> some of my favorite articles, you know, are, are uh, you know, there's some uh, comment and reply where, you know, you have like Willie Yasso saying, well, how do you know people don't have sex 200 times a week or you know, whatever? <laughs> I try. <Yeah. laughs> All right. Any last words on this? Yeah. Uh I'm just going back to Leslie's point, I think about hating the the uh, game, not the player. I think that in the field, a lot of the people who are spearheading the activism, who aren't the sort of uh, online comment trolls, but are actually trying to uh, change the methodology in the field, a lot of them really recognize the role of the incentive structure and are trying to change that in, in a variety of ways, you know, trying to give you credit, let's say, for... Um, for uh, findings that don't work out, for you know, a venue for publishing null findings, let's say. Um, mm -hmm. So I think there are changes in that direction, um, but it's hard because I think you know, for a lot of people that are well-established, they really view it as, as, a, as a sort of personal attack on them and, and the way they've always done things. Yeah, we could ask even more abstractly, is it possible to hate the game without hating, hating the player? That is to say, is it possible to have a meaningful program of reform that doesn't involve making examples of people who had followed the old rules, but we are now redefining as malefactors under this new, uh, more this new regime that the moral entrepreneur is trying to create. Well, I think Cuddy's defenders would say it's okay to point out the error if you don't demonize the person who is playing by the rules at the time. Yeah, well, I'd be fine with that. I think I think it makes a lot of sense to say power posing is a ridiculous idea, but I would never say that Amy Cuddy's an idiot. Yeah, or that she was malfeasant. I think the yeah. I think it's the insinuation that she was 
purposely trying to manipulate as opposed to investing a good faith effort is what uh, is mobilizing a lot of her defenders. Sure. I think that's right. And now we turn to David Peterson of Northwestern University. David is a sociologist of knowledge and science. He's best known for his 2015 article in ASR, All that, all This Solid Bench Building at the Frontiers of Two Experimental Sciences. His newer work talks about trust and the moral economy. David, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your larger intellectual project? Sure. I think um, I got into the project uh, largely – I. I listened to the to the uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago, and you had uh, Steve Basie on, and he was talking a little bit about uh, the need for sociologists to sort of reach out across uh, disciplinary boundaries and integrate more work um, from uh, the decision sciences, cognitive sciences, psychology into the field. So I started this project really with that goal, um, and so I started to uh, go into labs to sort of learn more about how psychology operated, and um, what I found is that uh, the work they were doing uh, was much more complicated than the papers I was reading. I was getting a much different view within the labs than from the papers, uh, from the sort of conclusions that I was reaching from the papers. And so it started to, um, to give rise to a set of questions about, well, what is so challenging? What is so different about, um, let's say, laboratory work on human beings as uh, psychology experiments than, let's say, um, experiments in a natural science environment. So this really motivated a larger study where I, I um, conducted a comparative ethnography with uh, 10 different psychology laboratories and one natural science laboratory, a molecular biology lab, to see what was going on at the level of practices that could kind of explain um, you know, some of the challenges that psychology was having. What, can you just for those who haven't read your article, can you explain some of the differences? Yeah. So one of the things that you see uh, sort of jumps out at you most explicitly, I think, is really radical um, uh, distinctions in the role of both uh, technique and technology, both the role of sort of embodied knowledge of of um, of uh, tacit skill and the rapid development and the rapid incorporation of technology. And I argue that. Uh, the molecular biology lab and really um, most kind of natural science labs uh, have a high levels of both embodied skill uh, and or um, a technology uh, incorporation, whereas in psychology labs, you have much lower levels of this. And I think um, what happens is that, uh, is that this creates a very different cultures where you have one that's kind of this, this very rapid developing um, a, a culture focused around the development of new uh, technological manipulations, and another which is focused on a different kind of knowledge production, one um, that I'm um, I'm still sort of grappling with, but I think um, is one that I think we need to understand better as, as sociologists. What do we as sociologists have to learn from the natural sciences? Is there anything that you've sort of in your in your grappling with? us versus them. Is there any reflection on maybe things that we could be doing differently? Or is it possible? I think there's certainly a couple sides to this issue. One, when I went into the... So the first article I ever published actually was an article uh, that used a lot of a developmental cognitive science uh, to uh, critique sort of classic arguments by um, by social constructionists, uh, um, really exemplified by a Durkheim's uh, work on the 
uh, social foundations of basic cognitive concepts like like cause and 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 force and all of these things, essentially arguing that that uh, these things don't emerge in the social world that you can see them in infants. So when I went into the um, into the developmental psychology labs. Uh, I started to realize that I had been accepting a lot of these findings somewhat uncritically. And I think this is a, a, a somewhat problematic a relationship that sociology has because of its, its sort of low status in the sciences, that it's very willing to kind of read these articles and sort of take uh, the conclusions uh, as they stand and not really understand uh, how even within the field, those conclusions are, are um not nearly as black and white as as they would appear on the printed page. And so I think that's one side of it. On the other side, I think we really have to do a better job of um, of because we we don't we aren't in this uh, business of producing technological products like most of the natural sciences are, uh, I think we tend to focus more on questions of methodology. It, it's not so much the end as we tend to focus on on the means of science production. And I think sociologists mm-hmm. uh, do not do a very good job of, uh, of um, we are falling behind uh, our, our sort of uh, sister sciences in uh, openness, in sharingness, in, 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 uh, in transparency, in issues uh, that the other fields, I think, are confronting much more head on. Like, can you give us some concrete examples of what we could be doing? Yeah, I think, um, so in a lot of the psychology journals, one of the things they're doing now is they're implementing a badge system. And so the idea is that if you publish, uh, if you publish research and you uh, share your, your uh, data or materials, that they, there will be uh, some sort of badge on the paper. And it will be kind of like a, a mark of virtue that, that essentially, you know, that if you want to, you can go out and you can find everything and you can try to reproduce the findings on your own, as you were talking about before with the Reinhardt, um, Reinhardt and Rogoff piece. That that this it, this is one of the things they're doing, and there's not a lot of good reason for not doing that in many cases for sociological articles, especially when you're dealing with things like um, like uh, a large scale data sets, like um, you know, like the General Social Survey or something. There's not a lot of good reason for not not sharing your code and things like that. Yeah, although ironically, you're you're using a methodology where that wouldn't be appropriate because. There's all sorts of ethical problems with posting field notes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's really great. I mean, it's a very interesting ethical ethical dilemma. Well, what do what do qualitative researchers do? So, I think the question with qualitative research is is somewhat different than with quantitative research, because I think ultimately the question with a lot of qualitative research is not about you know making some sort of uh, ironclad causal argument. I think. Yeah, you're not trying to get people to replicate your results. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, Jeremy Fries and I actually just wrote uh, an annual review article on replication, and it was interesting. Uh, you, you know, initially we were uh, thinking about talking about a qualitative research in the same context, and we realized that we just it, it's really it deserved its own section because the issue of replication in qualitative research is so different because uh, it's just a, a different sort of research. And I think the goal of a lot of qualitative research is ultimately to convince people about the nature of some phenomenon, that that this is the way things work. These are the variables that are important. These are the differences that are important. And I think, you know, that eventually can give rise to um, some sort of quantitative research, which can be replicated and which can uh, produce, you know, something that looks more like, uh, more like, you know, quantitative science. But, but if that's the case, then what is the difference between a 
uh, a sociologist doing qualitative research in a journalistic account? I think the question has to do um, to some degree with, uh, with theory with the role of theory, uh, with hmm. the idea that you are developing in a certain tradition, that you are working with, uh, you know, a deeper, more sort of theoretical uh, concepts, and you aren't just sort of uh, giving a very sort of flat account. For instance, the um, the article on uh, uh, in the American Sociological Review, for instance, that is focused on on sort of a tradition of laboratory studies. On it, it embraces stuff about materiality. It it engages with stuff on on tacit knowledge. So there's a, it's, yeah, it's not just a, a sort of journalistic account. This, uh, this distinction of what distinguishes long-form journalism from ethnography being theory, um, kind of implicit in that seems to be a turn that I see with a lot of younger ethnographers away from thick description, and uh, which I think is welcome because I, I find thick description can, can you explain that to those of us who aren't as deep into qualitative work? Well, I, I'm not a qualitative person either, so I could explain it <laughs> but, but I mean, my my caricature of thick description is that you try to so grounded theory is you go in without strong theoretical preconceptions, but thick description takes it one step forward, and that even coming out of it, you don't really have a theory hook. You're just like, you know, trying to like capture somebody. You're just trying to capture the sensation of having been there, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and so you're telling people all about the subjective experiences of these people's lives, but almost as a point of principle, you resist. Uh, broad theory hooks and having it speak to uh, larger theoretical questions. Yeah, I think one of the really inf- the really fascinating things about um, about the molecular biology lab that I, I was surprised about was how much uh, they engaged in kind of qualitative discussions about the data they gathered. <laughs> that often they would mm-hmm. they would be taking these pictures or be uh, getting some form of data that was way too noisy to you know show any kind of a clear pattern, and they would all stand around and sort of try to interpret what was happening, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. a very sort of qualitative understanding of what was happening. And then from that, they would go back into the lab and, you know, they would tweak a couple of things and attempt to redo the experiment to attempt to re- reduce the noise. And I think, in a sense, qualitative mm-hmm. sociology sort of operates in the same way, where I think, to some degree, you know, you you need this kind of direct, thick engagement in order to... Um, better understand, you know, which variables are actually important. So, you know, when you want to do, I mean, I don't think, I don't think qualitative uh, uh, sociology as an end in itself uh, makes a ton of sense because then you end up with something like journalism. It, it has to, it has to produce something that, that I think um, that can be meaningful uh, for, let's say, more quantitative uh, oriented uh, sociologists. Well, that's what's nice about your work, right, is that it's it's qualitative, but you can easily imagine it fitting very well with like a computer simulation mm-hmm. of p-hacking or publication bias or that sort of thing. So it's like, even though you're using completely different methods than Christopher Young, mm-hmm. um, I, could very, I would be sh- surprised to see your paper cited and not his in the future because you're doing things that conceptually go towards the same endpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my... Uh, my advisor uh, Jeremy Fries is a uh, is his main a uh, main focus. I mean, he's a quantitative methodologist, and I think mm-hmm. um, it's been a very helpful. We have a couple of projects working together, and I think that it's been very helpful um, working with him on that because uh, I think that's the way his mind works. I mean, he he definitely uh, he definitely um, a sort of demands a, a sort of you know where is this going? How is this going to you know how is yeah. this going to help other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and not only is Jeremy a quantitative methodologist, but he's also substantively oriented towards social psych and evolutionary psych, 
which are some of the fields you're criticizing. Absolutely. Or, yeah. Well, not criticizing, but unpacking. Yes. You know? Yes. I have to say, I, I, I thought there was a lot to chew on on your qualitative work. And there were, I found it very thought provoking in a lot of ways. And one thing that struck me was the, uh, the natural scientists, uh, focus on data quality which I, uh, I I sort of inferred wasn't as strong in, in the social sciences. Yeah, absolutely. So earlier I mentioned this sort of increase, uh, this this uh, big variation in in the level of technique and technology in the natural sciences. And the larger argument there is that what that is for is it's for altering the conditions of, of data collection. That's... Uh, you know, imagine a sociologist coming up with a survey. Uh, how much work uh, can you do on that survey? How many, you know, trial runs can you do with that survey? How many, how many times can you reorder questions and reword a question um, before you kind of, uh, you know, have have tapped out all of your possibilities? That situation isn't the same as as that which faces a natural scientist. For them, they are able to continue to add new things to the. Uh, their their investigative procedures. They're uh, able to transform uh, the site of data collection in a way that is extremely difficult for most social scientists. Do you think that it we're really limited, though, or do you think it's a, a, a failure of imagination on our part and a lack of focus on data quality? Because I could imagine there's an infinite number of ways that you can alter you know, the conditions that you administer surveys or how you deliver them. I can think of a, a at least a variety of ways, but I don't like I don't see people trying to reimagine the survey on this scale that I inferred your natural scientists to be reimagining their instruments, you know, and, and their data collection. Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, I think there is a lot of. Uh, a lot of possibility here. I, I think there are a couple of, of natural sort of limitations. And in the article, I talk about um, them as, on one hand, you have sort of ethical limitations as to what you can actually do um, with a human subject. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas with a, a mouse, you can, you, you know, you, you pretty much have free reign with what you do, with how you manipulate, how you control the environment that the mouse is raised in. A human being essentially comes uh, as a fully formed, you know, creature into your lab, and the only sort of control you have is, you know, you can provide them with some sort of instructions, um, which I think is 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 obviously quite limited. Another aspect I think has to do with the ontological uh, features of of um of a lot of social scientific work, which is that um, we are dealing a lot of times with kind of meaningful concepts, uh, uh, categories like race or or power, and these things uh, don't lend themselves to um, to sort of uh, endless tinkering and reduction into into finer and finer components. And so I think um, those two things I think do provide some natural limitations to social scientific. Um, experimentation. That being said, though, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, things like um, like uh, people using uh, methods like giving subjects apps on their cell phone that they check in periodically. You know, this is like a, you know, a new way that some social psychologists are, are, uh, are you know, gaining more access, gaining more purchase on their experimental object. So I wanted to ask about um, the Baby Factory paper that was published in Socius. Sure. Um, I thought that paper was a lot of fun, and one reason it really resonated with me is that when my daughter, who's now 10, was, uh, you know, six months old, I took her to one of the infant cognition labs at Harvard twice 
Um, and, uh, it, it was really interesting to see them do the work because one of the two times the experiment worked as normal, she was a cooperative experimental subject. And, um, you know, the, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically the way that these, uh, baby methodologies work is they do a puppet show for the baby and something about the puppet show is a little bit off. And by seeing whether the baby appears surprised when something weird happens, they can tell what the baby was anticipating and therefore what the baby was thinking. So, for instance, if you have two objects go behind a screen and three come out and the baby is not surprised by this, you can infer that the baby doesn't know how to count. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So uh, one of the two times that I took my daughter there, and again, this is when she was very young. I think she'd perform better now. Um, <laughs> she's, you know, in fifth grade. Um, she... Um, you know, she sat on my lap and she stared at the jar of salsa and the little puppet tries to pick up the jar of salsa and this and that. And she looked at it and, you know, they could track her eye movement. She seemed to be a cooperative experimental subject. And then um, and then the other time they tried to do it, she just like wasn't uh-huh. interested. She was just like, you know, sucking on her fist or something the whole time. And um, and the grad student who was doing the experiment basically said, well, you know, that's OK. You know, sometimes we have to throw out a case and. um and I was thinking, well, wait a minute, how do you know that this wasn't, you know, I kind of inferred that they were doing the control condition and the dependent variable in these studies is basically always some variation on the baby gets bored and stop paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking like, well, how do you know that that wasn't meaningful, not paying attention and not like she wasn't paying attention because she was an uncooperative subject, right? How do you know that this is a, this is missing data, not a zero? And they basically made the operational decision. And then I was telling um, one of my grad students, David Scheiber, uh, yesterday about your paper. And he's like, oh, I took my daughter to or my son to um, one of these baby labs. And the exact same thing happened to me. So, you know, uh, with both my personal experience and that of one of my uh, students, it it seems very similar to what you're finding in your paper. Yeah, I mean, when I started uh, observing in the labs, I, I, I had been reading a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, a sociologist, um, of science who had done laboratory ethnographies. And a lot of that work sort of focuses on the fact that, okay, you know, you have this philosophy of science of how science is supposed to work. And when you actually go into the labs, it tends mm-hmm. to be quite a bit, you know, more interpretive and, and, uh, you know, findings are kind of more emergent than they are, you know, um, sort of predetermined by some scientific methodology. But when I was observing in the baby lab, I was like, this is, I mean, this is, uh, it's not, not quite chaos, but like a controlled chaos, you know, I mean, as you would expect when, you know, there's like a small group of rooms where you've got three or four babies and a bunch of, you know, siblings and a bunch of parents around and, and, uh, it doesn't, it, it, you know, doesn't look like science. And then you realize that, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of this sort of, um, there's a lot of researcher fiat going on. You know, a lot of researchers mm-hmm. kind of making decisions about what counts, what doesn't count, what what counts as, as the baby becoming interested or not. Um, and so uh, I think um, when the paper came out, some of the social psychologists were, were a little upset about, um, you know, thinking that I was essentially saying that, that what they were doing was was so different from from what happens in a physics lab or, or in a chemistry lab. And, and ultimately, I think, um, you know, that... that you see the same sort of uh, the same sort of um, you know interpretations and the same researcher decisions that happen in, in those other labs, but you would expect them to be um, 
more prevalent in a lab that works on you know six month old babies. I mean, it's it's yeah. and, and and it seems crazy to expect anything else. Yeah. So do you think? So what's the practical upshot? Do you? I mean, do you think that you know the documentary, the human baby, or like copies of Pinker's How the Mind Works should have like a warning sticker <laughs> on the front? Or uh, I mean, or, I mean, not literally, but I mean, do you think that this implies that maybe it turns out that babies can't count at six months; they count at nine months or whatever? Like, do you think some of these findings are probably wrong because there's so many de- uh, uh, researcher degrees of freedom, especially in things like when yes. do you kick a case? Yeah. So I. So I, at the end of the baby factory paper, I I tackle this really explicitly, and and the argument that I I make there is that. Um, if you just read the sort of written literature, you're likely to come away with uh, an overinflated idea of what the field has done. I think, mm-hmm. though, that, that within the field, that sort of through the network of the field, you get a, a, a different sense of um, what is and what isn't truth. And so you have a sense that certain findings that got through the publication process may not be replicable, and they may... Um, you know, whether you consider those just, you know, false or whether you consider them, you know, fragile findings uh, is, is up for debate. But the idea is that you wouldn't, you know, probably pursue those findings in your own work because they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't replicate, they wouldn't help you out. And so mm-hmm. in a sense, there's sort of a, a, a network of knowledge that's occurring, even though a lot of the publication stuff may be overinflated or, or, or maybe flat wrong, there's still a sense that that through, you know, these communication networks, there's still a sense of, of okay, you know, these findings at least are robust. We can work with these. And so I think um, this may end up being, you know, somewhat problematic that there is this sort of, you know, disjuncture between the publication literature and what people know within the field to be true and, and not true. Um, but I think in fields like a developmental psychology that, that that maybe don't have you know sort of immediate pressing um, uh, ramifications for uh, for you know policy issues, let's say that it may not mm-hmm. be you know such a massive issue. But it is interesting that at the abstract level, what you're talking about is a tacit knowledge issue, and that one dimension of tacit knowledge is a, kind of a, a rough sense of how reliable different findings are. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's it it really has a has m- multiple problems I think because uh, you know it's 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 very helpful I think for you to be in a central location at that point because if you are at at a at a university or uh, in a laboratory that has very good network connections you're likely to hear about what doesn't work and what does work whereas if you are on a more peripheral location you might you know you, you may be reading these articles assuming that all of these things are true and you may spend you know m- m- you know most of your graduate career failing to replicate a finding that everybody already knows is false. And so it has... So it, oh, okay. yeah. yeah, so if we were to assume that it becomes possible to somehow, you know, more possible to publish um, failed replications, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say that it was easy to publish null findings. This implies that a meta-analysis would find more null findings from people at the periphery of science than at the core of science. That's an interesting hypothesis. I mean, I... I I don't know. Yeah, that's a. Uh, I think that's a really interesting, interesting hypothesis. Hi, David. So I ha- so I have a question for you. Considering that you know, you know, you were in laboratories like that, but then you were also in the molecular mm-hmm. bio lab. Um, and one of the things that 
that I've been fascinated by is, you know, especially over the, I would say the past like seven to eight years, more and more, the quote unquote hard sciences um, have been experiencing mm -hmm. their own replication crises. Um, you know, more and more we're, we've been seeing things, uh, you know, uh, studies that have been published in leading biology journals, um, you know, health journals, et cetera, in, in which, you know, findings just can't be replicated. And um, I'm wondering if a lot of the same things that you're seeing, um, even in like the crazy baby labs, right, where it's really hard to mm -hmm. sort of herd cats um, or toddlers, as it were, um, you know, a lot of the same things um, are happening in these labs. I mean, it seemed to me that that's part of what um, what you were saying earlier, that, you know, there is, I mean, there's definitely this process of, um, this process of interpretation, right? Um, first order, second order interpretation um, that actually might then leave room for things to actually not being it, yeah, being replicated. That's a great point. I mean, I think a lot of the the uh, the incentive structures that you see in the psychology labs uh, exist in in the scientific field itself. So it raises the question, you know, what what would make these psychology labs uh, different? And I think on one hand, I think the reason why we're seeing mm -hmm. the rise of of all of this uh, activism in psychology is because psychology has always been at the forefront of methodological revolutions because they've always been the sort of softest of the hard sciences. I think um, they were the first ones to sort of embrace uh, statistical methodology, for instance. And it was precisely because, you know, they, they, uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it gave them a certain, you know, scientific cachet. Um, I think though that uh, with some of the hard sciences, like, like in molecular biology, I think one of the reasons why, uh, why they're maybe facing a separate set of issues is because if you are focused on the development of, of new technologies, of manipulations, it's it's somewhat uh, – if you produce something, if you produce some new mechanism for dying cells, for instance, uh, other labs want to use that right away because it furthers their own research projects. If, if your method doesn't actually do anything, then everyone's going to know that the paper that you published is nonsense. And so replication for these labs is not just an issue of kind of abstract, you know, is, is it true or not? But, but a sort of existential question of, of, I need to use this for my own work. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's not, for the social sciences, replication tends to take more of a, uh, of a verification sort of approach where uh, it's almost a test of truthfulness. And I think, um, I think that in uh, sciences that, that have more of a technological uh, focus, a, a replication sort of serves a different purpose for them. Like a borrowing of practical Yes, exactly. And, I, and, and in, in psychology and in our own field, I don't, you don't see that as much. When, you, when somebody replicates somebody else's work, it often is seen as almost an attack on that person. It can be, yeah, quite interpersonally huh, yeah. You know, problematic. Well, you know, I'd say, I guess it like goes back to the whole Amy mm -hmm. Cuddy thing. And, you know, it's like ra vilifying somebody maybe instead of just taking the lesson. Do, is there any way you could see us adopting a more practical disposition? This is for anybody, like uh, within our own discipline, getting some type of cumulative methodological sort of... So Duncan Watts actually just wrote uh, an article where he, he essentially made that same argument that, that what we need to do is we need to be focused on more sort of tangible, practical things that our knowledge can actually do rather than, um, you know, 
sort of uh, abstract, you know, strictly academic knowledge, which doesn't really translate toward policy in, in any kind of meaningful way. And so I think it's an interesting argument. Um, I, I don't know. I, I am not sure whether the field will actually move that way or not, but it's, it, uh, I think at least some people are thinking in that direction. So. Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, are, I mean, there are people who are doing just that, you know, it's just that not, not everyone thinks that what we do needs to be practical, right? Or have any practical, you know, significance. You know, that a lot of times there's some sort of um, like uh, Andrew Abbott uh, professional regress, where I think that doing practical work is, is kind of mm. seen as more low status, whereas, you know, the, the more abstract, you know, theoretical stuff is, yeah. is a... Uh, is respected more. Yeah, I, I you know, mm. I kind of don't get that either, right? I mean, I get doing the abstract stuff because you love it, um, but I also get do, I, 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 and, you know, whatever, and, and I guess you should get some kudos for that, um, but I also get doing the practical stuff because it actually mm. is used to push society forward. Um, I don't know. Is that is that not a, a goal? Well, I, 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 I think that, that we have a lot of, there's a lot of fetishizing these grand theorists of the 19th century, and everybody wants to be, you know, Karl Marx reincarnate, something like that with, with these wide-ranging theories. And maybe the nuts and bolts just aren't part of, I don't know, the, the, the collective imagination of the discipline, this idea that we're all, we could all just be pluggers, you know? Yeah, but didn't Mark? But didn't Marx himself say, right? You know what I mean? It's like to paraphrase: What's the point in just describing the world and doing all this abstract mm-hmm. crap if we're not going to change oh, it? I was just going to say that, like in in how we underappreciate the um, methodological and tinkering aspect. I have like a lecture where you know, so I teach a media class at UCLA, and in one of them, I. I have this lecture on how people in the media actually make decisions. And part of it actually talks about Lazarsfeld because he had all these side projects where he worked with CBS to develop like focus group methodology and that sort of thing. And um, I always tell them that like, you know, everything that you just learned in your one-on-one class across the street, you know, in the next lecture hall uh, is total nonsense. That doesn't actually influence what we did. It's all influenced by Lazarsfeld, but we have this weird intellectual history where it's all grand theorists rather than, you know, here's the people who inter. Uh, introduce the methodology that actually structures how we spend our days. And now, a word from Editor Bain. Tenure has cost you strength. Victory has defeated your ability to appreciate helpful comments for improving the paper. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to David Peterson of Northwestern University. David is a sociologist of knowledge and science. His 2015 article in ASR is all This is Solid, Bench Building at the Frontiers of Two Experimental Sciences. His newer work talks about trust and the moral economy of science. We are on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Sochanex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Gabriel Rossman and Leslie Hinkson, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.